Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Hello friends, I am so happy to be back with you all this week after a very brief break and to be exploring the theme of memory. Now, I've been having a bit of a crisis of memory lately because I misplaced one of my journals. I have been keeping a journal fairly consistently since I was about eight years old. Actually, since I was exactly eight years old because my very first journal, which was this, uh, It was a journal that was wrapped in a jean, like in a a blue jean binding and had daisies embroidered on front and was therefore creatively called by me as an eight-year-old, Daisy. And the very first journal entry reads, Dear Daisy, as you know, I am a writer and a poet. Uh, And thus began my habit of journaling, which I've kept up pretty consistently ever since then. And that, that became more important for me and more consistent, particularly in my teen years and then now into my 20s. And especially in the years, I think, kind of near the end of college and then into my young adult years, it's been a really important way for me to record my thoughts and anxieties and also to be able to look back and kind of see my progression of who I was and who I've become. Uh, I always think that probably my journals are not exactly a realistic depiction of who I am because I tend to turn to them when I'm in a particularly elated or depressive mood. But nonetheless, there's been this kind of continuity in my life of returning to these journals and being able to see my progression as a person. Now, recently, I was finishing a writing project, finishing a poem that I had actually started in this other journal a while back. And It was feeling important to me to finish this poem because it was kind of capping off a season that I have been going through for the last several years. And and so because I'd begun it in this other journal, I went to look for the journal because I thought if I'm going to end it in this journal, I need to remember how I began it. But as I went back to find the journal, I realized that I had misplaced it. So I was searching all around my house and I still haven't found the journal. And as I looked, I began to have this kind of increasing anxiety and of course, there's there's the anxiety that goes with what if my journal is floating around somewhere on a train or in someone's house and someone could read it. But I realized that wasn't really the anxiety there. And so I kind of explored to myself, why am I feeling so anxious about having lost this journal? And I realized that it was because this journal held the thoughts and anxieties and regrets of nine of the most important most transformative years, or not years, months of my life. And there was a sense in which I felt like if I had lost the memories that were contained and expressed and and wrestled over in those pages, if I'd lost them, that I would have somehow lost the part of myself that had been becoming and, and progressing through those nine months. And also, as I finished this other poem that had been begun in the first first journal, there was a sense in which I felt like I couldn't finish or close this chapter without being able to see how it began. 
remember distinctly and in detail how it began in, in the other journal. So I realized that the real kind of locus of my anxiety came from the fact that this journal had to do with memory and that, that memory had to do with the sense of my own identity of who I am now and how I go forward. And it's funny because I had this crisis the same moment that I was beginning to outline this week's podcast on memory. And I realized that it perfectly illustrated the ways in which memory impacts us as people. I think oftentimes we think of memory as kind of an objective list of facts, a recollection of things that happened. We can imagine it almost like it's a film that we can press play on and recall. But really, memory is much less objective than that, and it's much more personal. What it also revealed to me is that memory is not something that has to do with the past. I realized that my sense of being able to move forward as a person and orient myself in the present had to do with my ability to properly or correctly orient myself in the memories of the past. So this brings forward the questions that I want to address today. What is memory? How does it shape our identity? Who we think we are based on the story that we tell ourselves about the past? How does it shape our orientation in the world? How does it shape the ways that we relate to our goals and our desires based on what has come before and how we conceive of ourselves and our life narrative? And then finally, how does memory shape the way that we approach the future, the things that we strain toward? Memory fundamentally shapes our experience of the world and our understanding of ourselves. Soren Kierkegaard, the Christian existentialist theologian, famously wrote that life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. I think this is a perfect articulation of how memory helps us interpret our sense of self and orient us in our perspective of what the future can hold and offer. Our memory can propel us towards certain desires or it can hold us back in pain or in experiences of trauma. Memory can pull us back to the things that matter most to us, or it can push us away from things that we fear or regret. So today we will explore memory, and we'll do that by looking at three works of art, one visual, one literary, and one musical. First, we will look at a visual example of Memento, a film by Christopher Nolan, which is the story of a man who cannot remember. Then we will look at the musical example of the score from West Side Story by Leonard Bernstein. And we'll talk about the story of a city that cannot forget. And finally, we will look at a literary example of the novel Remembering by Wendell Berry, the story of a man who is saved by being remembered. And in all of these, we'll reflect on the ways that memory shapes how we think of the past, how we orient ourselves in the present, and how we approach the future, either in hope or in fear. So I hope that that piques your interests and gets you excited to explore this theme with me in this episode. And I have to say that truly, this has been one of my favorite episodes to prepare for, and has really formed me uh, deeply as well.
So I'm excited to explore it with you. Now, before we begin, a few disclaimers. The first is that I have a cold. So if you think I sound slightly different, that's because I do. I have come to the end of a marathon of a month, um, which has tried me personally, professionally, and in every other way possible. And I've made it. I am well uh, of, of soul, but my body has decided to give up, and so I have a cold. So please forgive me for any sniffles. The second thing is that, as usual, I want to give a huge thank you to uh, my sponsor, the Anselm Society, which promotes uh, engagement between artists and the church in the Rocky Mountain area, and most of all to my patrons on Patreon, who support me doing the podcast so that I can continue to produce my podcast and do my PhD. I could not uh, do what I do, both in my PhD and in this podcast, were it not for your support. So you have really been God's hands and God's provision in my life, so thank you. And that relates to another announcement that I kind of want to get in your all's heads, which is that in the coming months, I will be significantly drawing back from social media. This is for several reasons. Uh, first of all, because I have a PhD that I need to finish, hopefully by the end of this, not the end of this calendar year, but the end of this academic year. And I really need to focus as much of my energy on that as I can. And so I'll be turning away from social media to do that. But also because I, I have wanted to take some time to reflect on how I engage with social media. It has been such a tool for connection with people and uh, with many thinkers and feelers and uh, listeners that I never would have gotten to engage with were it not for social media. And yet I think there is also a cost and a confusion to how we engage with it. And truly, I began being on social media when I was 17. I and uh, that was a fundamentally different time in my life. And I feel like there's never been a space where I've gotten to pull back and say, how do I approach social media? What is wise? What is prudent? What is good? What does it mean to be private in a, in a good and healthy way? And what does it cost to be public? So I will be pulling back from social media to focus on my PhD and to think about some of those questions. Uh, but I won't stop doing the podcast, so please, Make sure to subscribe because I won't be posting because I will probably just not be on my accounts. Um, and and make sure that you're signed up for, if you do want to keep up, make sure that you're signed up on my mailing list on my website, joyclarkson.com, um, or support me on Patreon. Those will kind of be the ways you can keep up is by listening to the podcast, subscribing on my email list, or um, following me on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash joyclarkson. Those will kind of be the one the ways that I will stay online even while I probably deactivate my accounts for a while. So that's a general announcement. Um, just keep your eyes peeled for that. And I wanted you all to know ahead of time before I just disappeared. And one final uh, thing that I would ask of you is that if you find this week's episode interesting or compelling, it would really help me if you would bop over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. That helps other people find the podcast. It helps me know what you enjoyed and what to do more of. Um, that would be a real help. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode, which explores memory and its effect on our identity and sense of orientation in the world.
I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. I have to believe that my actions still have meaning, even if I can't remember them. I have to believe that when my eyes are closed, the world's still here. Do I believe the world's still here? Is it still out there? We all need memories to remind us who we are. I'm no different. Now, where was I? This is the closing monologue in the startling film Memento by Christopher Nolan. Now, you may know Christopher Nolan for his other films, many of which are some of my favorites, some of the most enjoyable films to me that are thoughtful while also being popular and consumable and enjoyable. So he also produced um, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, the Batman series, which is something I must talk on the show about at some point because it's so interesting and fascinating. Uh, and he did Inception and he did Dunkirk. He's a famous British filmmaker. Uh, and he's famous for kind of engaging deep questions. But while those films are very watchable and enjoyable and in some senses kind of good old cinematic uh, movies you go to and get popcorn, this film, this 2000 film, uh, it was made in 2000, is is jarring and unpleasant and distressing, but it shares that deep and evocative uh, kind of edge that Christopher Nolan has dwelling on deep themes. And one of the primary themes of this film is the role of memory and how it shapes our conception of ourselves and the way that we relate to the world. Now, I should issue this warning, and I really do mean this. This film has mature content, violence, and is deeply disturbing. While it makes an excellent point, one that is so excellent that I think it's worth talking about in the show, it isn't one I would necessarily watch unless you are ready to reckon with some pretty heavy subject matter. For me, it's one that I watched uh, not really knowing how intense it was, and was glad to have watched, but then also thought, I don't think I'll ever watch this again because it was so intense. So at the outset, um, don't go watching this if you are just wanting like an easy film to watch that's kind of interesting, and know that it is not for young, young audiences, and that even you might just uh, enjoy hearing my commentary on it, uh, even if you don't watch it yourself. But it is such um, a deep and excellent exploration of this theme that I thought it was worthwhile talking about in the podcast. So the kind of plot behind this film is it centers around this character called Lenny, who has retrograde amnesia. I believe that's what it, what it's called. No, not retrograde, enter, enterograde amnesia, which is not, it's the inability to form new memories. And this comes from the fact that he has this traumatic experience. His wife is murdered. And in the experience of the murder, he goes to confront the, the, the murderer and he hits his own head, which means that after that experience, he's never able to make new memories, but his last memory is of his wife uh, and knowing that she was murdered. And so this, this kind of heavy, obviously traumatic experience leads him to become obsessed with killing his wife's murderer. But the problem is, of course, that it's very difficult to do the detective work of figuring out who the murderer is and where they are and also avenging yourself upon them if you have no ability to create new memories. And so uh, he, he can remember things for about 15 minutes or less um, if he is under stress. Uh, and the whole movie centered around his kind of journey, his battle, his movement towards trying to, to avenge his wife. Now, that's the general plot. But the thing that's really interesting about Minto is that we are thrown into an experience 
of being disoriented just like Lenny is in the way that the film was presented. So Wikipedia uh, summarizes this better than I could in my current fuzzy-headed, cold-having brain, which says that Memento is presented as two different sequences of scenes interspersed during the film, a series of scenes in black and white that is shown chronologically, and a series of color sequences shown in reverse order, simulating for the audience the mental state of the protagonist. So the two sequences meet at the end of the film, producing one complete and cohesive narrative. So the black and white sequence, uh, which goes in between, is happening in chronological order, working its way forward, while the uh, the color sequences are... They're, they're not going backwards, like you're not watching people speak backwards, but it's, it's going in the reverse order of... Uh, what actually happens in the plot meeting in the middle. And um, this creates kind of a confusion as you're watching it as, as an audience member and kind of shows uh, what it must be like to be Lenny, to, to not be able to put memories in their order, to not be able to tell the story of memory because he doesn't have the ability to make new memories. And so because of Lenny's confusion, uh, one of the things that happens over and over again throughout the movie is that he creates this kind of meticulous way of recording memories so that he'll be able to keep track of the facts he knows uh, to be able to capture the, the killer. And so he he tattoos facts on his body, the name of the person he thinks killed his wife. He uses tricks and sticky notes so he talks to people in person rather than on the phone because then he can tell their intentions and it's easier to He's more able to remember for longer. So he keeps sticky notes, he uses tattoos, he talks on the phone, um, and he kind of does different ways of tricking himself into being able to to supposedly remember, even though he can't create new memories, the facts that would be necessary to finding his wife's killer. And in a way, this kind of shows how many of us imagine memory, which is that we imagine memory to be kind of a collection of facts about the past, kind of a card file we can go back into and flip through chronologically and find what is true. But what, what, what the show demonstrates, what this movie really demonstrates, is that memory is far less objective than that. Memory is not a collection of facts because his body is tattooed, covered in facts. It is the ability, it's the capacity to tell a story about our past. And this is borne out in lots of psychological uh, memories, uh, psychological studies of memory. So when we look at courtrooms, uh, you know, we use witnesses, right, as as testimony, as um, evidence against or for certain crimes. But the problem is, is that you can have, uh, it, it's, it's fairly easy for people to be absolutely certain about their memories, but then be proven wrong. Uh, it's also possible, they've shown, to plant memories in, in witnesses' minds to the extent that they think they're absolutely positive they're correct. Um, and, and so this shows that memory is actually not, it's really, really not as objective as we think it is. I, I, this was actually borne out uh, in another journal experience for me, which is while I was looking for uh, the, the other journal that I, was, that I had misplaced, I opened up another journal and it fell open to this, this day that I remembered very specifically. And if you were to ask me, I would think that I could report it back to you fairly uh, in detail. But I hadn't opened the journal in a while. And I read through it and I started laughing because there were several funny things that had happened on this day in this memory that I had no recollection of at all. And even that I might have um, narrated differently. 
And this shows that memory is far less about the facts that we retain about the memories and far more about our ability to kind of narrate or tell the story of it. And this is actually more useful. This is the more useful element of memory because what Lenny shows us is that later in his story, we begin to see that somebody else is using the quote unquote facts that he has written down about his wife's murder to actually use him to get him, and this is a huge pl plot spoiler, so uh, skip if you don't want to know the plot, uses his these facts he's written in his body to manipulate him to kill other people. Um, so this other kind of murderous person is using him to manipulate him to kill. And this shows that the facts that we have are useless to us in our memory if we don't have an ability to connect them in a meaningful narrative. So memory is much less about these facts that we collect and much more about our capacity to tell a story. And that also has to do with how it relates to our own sense of identity. Who we are is not just a collection of facts about us. It is a summation of our ability to narrate the story of our lives and how those facts relate to who we are and where we are orientated in the world. And this is borne out in Lenny's character as well, because his whole identity throughout the whole film is tied up in avenging his wife's death. And in a sense, that's because that's the last memory he has. He's no, it, it's kind of like his self-development, his self-knowledge stopped at the moment he was no longer able to develop new memories. And so his narration of himself, because it can never move forward into the future, it can never move from the present into the future and therefore let his present become the past because he can no longer develop new memories. His sense of self, of who he is, how he's oriented to the world, what his purpose and his values and his goals are, is tied to his ability to make memories. And because he can no longer make memories, his sense of self is frozen. It's stuck in time. So this is kind of the message, three messages you could draw out of Memento. First, that memory is not objective. It's not a collection of facts. And even if you did collect the facts correctly, without the ability to string those facts into a meaningful narrative, the facts can be re reshuffled and reoriented in a way that totally changes and manipulates the story. So the first thing is that memory is not objective. It's not a collection of facts, but it's the capacity to string those facts together into a meaningful narrative. The second thing is that that meaningful narrative kind of situates us and orients us in the world. So memory tells us where we've come from, right? Have you ever had the experience of walking into a room and forgetting why you walked into the room, right? And then you think about it for a second and it comes back to you and you remember what it was. So that's an example of memory orienting you in the world, right? Because whatever you were doing before, which is the memory, drove you towards what you needed next. But if you lose the sense of memory of why you came into the room, then you lose the sense of forward motion. And so because Lenny has lost the ability to remember anything else, he only knows one goal, which is the goal, last goal he can remember, which was to avenge his wife. Which leads us to the third thing about memory, which is that memory shapes our sense of identity. We know who we are, what we like, what we want, what we want to avoid, largely because of our own memories, our own narrative, our own constructed narrative. Memory kind of marks our path, our sense of where we come from, of what direction we're going in. By memory, we kind of explain the wounds that we carry, the patterns that we repeat, the unmet desires that we continue to seek. If you didn't 
have a memory of the wounds you carried or the patterns that you've repeated or the desires that you haven't yet satisfied, would you still walk in the same directions? Would you still have a sense of unfinishedness? Memory helps us know why uh, why I am who I am uh, instead of somebody else, why I'm me, why I'm chasing the things I chase rather than something else. And it also shapes our sense of personal identity, our orientation in life, our direction and goals and desires. And Lenny is in this tragic position of having lost memory or having memory failed him and therefore not being able to know who he is, not being able to know where he's really come from, and not being able to reshape where he's going because he's constantly stuck in this permanent past. So Lenny represents to us the kind of centrality of memory uh, in, in our sense of personal identity and of where we're going and what our goals are. But it also represents this huge kind of fear of what if our memory fails us. But I think there's a sense in which it also shows us that memory will always fail us because memory is not objective, right? We do forget things. We misremember things. Things can be planted. So what do we do with the fact that memory is both central to our sense of identity and purpose, but also that it can always fail us, that it is uh, not objective, that it's uh, kind of transient. And this relates to me uh, to to a ancient philosopher who I have come to grow an affection for. During my break last week, it was Independent Learning Week here in St. Andrews, and I went on a trip to Oxford and got two books to just pleasure read. I'd finished a big chapter of my PhD, and so I wanted to just enjoy something. So I've been reading a biography on St. Augustine by Henry Chadwick, which I would very much recommend. It's very enjoyable. Um, and one of the things uh, that that Augustine was most fascinated with throughout his life. And I will say that St. Augustine, it is often said, is uh, all, of, all of the other theology in the West is but a footnote to Augustine. It has often been said that. And, and one of the things that he was really interested in was the role of memory. For him, memory was not just our recollection of past events, but the thing which enabled us to kind of sustain our understanding of past experiences, sensations, thoughts, and orient us in the future and around ourselves. Uh, the problem of memory and self-knowledge or identity, which is kind of what we see with Lenny, right? That because he has a failure of memory, he has a, a, a problematized understanding of himself, uh, is one which Augustine wrestled with over and over again, and really largely in his work, The Confessions, right? Because The Confessions is uh, what we often think of as the first autobiography. It was written in the, the 5th century, and it's his recollection of his young years and how he came to accept the Christian faith. But all throughout uh, the Confessions, there's this kind of sense of, of wondering if he's narrating it right or if he remembered his, his, his life rightly. Uh, if, and not just, not just a wondering if this is true, kind of a sense of knowing that it's not true, that... He has a hard time uh, putting his finger on objectivity because he can't. And, um, and this is related to this kind of tension between our narration of ourself that we do through memory and then God's understanding of us, which is, is complete, right? So Augustine always sets up this idea that memory shapes how we conceive of ourselves. 
but it's always incomplete because we are limited and we can't perfectly and objectively remember everything about our lives. And so there's the incompleteness but necessity of memory compared to the fullness of being known through God. And there's this really wonderful chapter in Rowan Williams' book um, on Augustine where he talks about this relationship between time and memory and self. And he says, God's knowledge of me is available not as a picture I can grasp or as a piece of information, but in the form of trust in God's love, faith in other words, such a trust is grounded in and enabled by the history of Christ. And that history reveals a divine life of love which secures an eternal place for me in its pattern. So the reason that uh, that Rowan Williams bring this up is that there's this sense in which our narration of ourselves in memory is fundamentally incomplete and always will be because we are incomplete. We, we cannot remember everything perfectly. And if that is the foundation for our understanding of ourselves, how can we ever have a true identity? But Augustine kind of brings up this wonderful idea that we are remembered in God and that that memory, that understanding is full and therefore is a foundation for our own sense of identity, that we are remembered in God and the history of Christ, not just in our own subjective understanding of ourselves through memory. And really what this is getting at is saying that even though our sense of self is tied up in memory because we remember who we were and what our story is and what we liked, there is a reality to who we are that is outside of our own conception of ourselves. And that reality is held in God's love and in other people's love of who we are that has to do with something entirely outside of our own heads, of our own ability to narrate and remember ourselves. And this actually ties back into Memento, I think. Because Lenny's kind of horror, the hell that he is caught in, is that he is caught inside his own head. And this is a repeated theme throughout the movie, which is that he'll close his eyes and he'll say, does the world keep on going if I close my eyes? Because he feels this desperate need to try to kind of hold on to and narrate the world. Because if he doesn't, it's lost in his own memory. So there's a sense in which he's always wrestling with the question of, if it's lost in my memory, is it really lost? Or is there an objective me, an objective world that's outside of my ability or my inability to remember it? And the one thing that recurs over and over again throughout the movie is his memory, his last memory, which is, is, is of his wife, who he loves deeply. And there's this sense in which his wife kind of becomes the symbol or the embodiment of how memory only refers to reality. Lenny's, Lenny's memory of his wife is his anchor to reality. His love and grief and rage over her death reminds him that there is a reality outside of his ability to remember. And I think that that sense of being loved and known, even when we can't remember or articulate our own stories perfectly, is something that is then mirrored to a greater and more fundamental extent in God's kind of holding of us. When we are mysterious to ourselves, when we're not sure if we can narrate the history or our own memories correctly, and that gives us a sense of instability in our identity, we are reminded that our identity is not only tied up in our own memory of ourselves, but in God's holding of us in his own mind, in love. And that's been something that's been really comforting for me to think about as I've lost my journal, which is that even if I lose this history, this sense of memory 
of what I, how I've changed and who I've become. That change is something outside of my own narration of the change. That change is something that's not just narrated in my own memory. It's something that's held in God's hands and told in God's story. And as that Williams quote says, um, it is, it is my trust in God's love, uh, that secures an eternal place for me in Christ's pattern. So this is our first example, is um, our visual example of memento, exploring a man who cannot make new memories and whose identity is therefore kind of fixed or um, stuck. He's unable to progress. And this brings up this question of, do we have an identity outside of our own narration of ourselves? To which we can say with Augustine that while memory is important for shaping our experience of ourselves, there is something more fundamental outside of our narration of ourselves and of our memory, which is God's true idea of us, that he holds us in his recollection and in his eye. And this is a more fundamental reality of our identity that's not dependent on our own imperfect memories. So now we're going to move from the visual example of Memento into the musical example of West Side Story, which compared to the story of a man who cannot remember is the story of a city that cannot forget. Now, West Side Story made in 1961 is, first of all, one of my very favorite musicals. It's being remade. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's, uh, of course, the director and writer of Hamilton, is involved, and so I'm sure it'll be very good, but there's part of me that's worried about the new adaptation because nothing could be more perfect than the 1961 uh, version. So this is a retelling of Shakespeare's classic tragedy, Romeo and Juliet, and it explores themes of love and violence and forgiveness. But instead of taking place in the Italian uh, countryside with the Montagues and Capulets, who of course are the warring families that then Romeo and Juliet fall in love and create all this violence and it's a terrible time. Uh, instead of that world, this takes place in New York City between two New York City gangs, kind of two immigrant gangs, the Jets and the Sharks. Uh, who are these two gangs made up of Polish and then Puerto Rican um, immigrants. And between these two gangs, uh, there is this grudge. And something happens in the opening scene that's kind of the foundation for the grudge. But there's this sense as you go on that the grudge, you almost can't remember why it begins, but it's very important to them that the grudge is not forgotten. And then, of course, what happens is that in this in between these two gangs, these two people, Tony and Maria, uh, one from the Sharks, one from the Jets, fall in love. Uh, but can this love exist uh, between these warring sides? And uh, the question behind this really is, can love grow if, there, if this violence and this, um, this violence of the past really is, is not able to come to a rest? And and this is really, um, the way that it is explored musically is really fascinating. So all throughout the score, the whole score is built around what is called a tritone. So if you've seen the movie, um, and even if you haven't here, I'm going to play one of the most famous, uh, one of the most famous songs, a segment for one of the most famous songs, which uh, demonstrates the tritone. And we'll talk more about how this kind of becomes this picture of an inability to forget or an inability to forgive. 
So this is the classic love song, Maria. All the beautiful sounds of the world in a single Just kissed a girl named Maria And suddenly I found How wonderful a sound can be Maria Say it loud and there's music playing Say it's soft and it's almost like All right, so this is one of the most classic songs from, from the movie, and I just, I love this. Uh, aside from everything else, this is, this is not what I'm going to talk about, but it just captures that first flush of a loving or liking someone when everything about them seems precious and beautiful and when their name is a treasure. But for our own purposes, the really important thing is that this song is built on a tritone, which then becomes the foundation for the entire score. So a tri the tritone that you're hearing is the bum bum, right? So Maria, uh, and it's that, it goes from like an F to a B if you play the piano. And this has been called the devil's interval because it's kind of a dissonant, unresolved uh, note. It's something that doesn't feel finished. When we hear bum bum, you either want it to go down or up, you need it to resolve. So it's kind of this uncomfortable interval that upsets people. And, uh, and it's so uncomfortable that most classical composers used to kind of avoid it because they, or, or not want to resolve on it because it, it feels unpleasant, feels icky. You want it to resolve in some way. And this song does so with this real kind of glowing, growing sense, right? It goes bum, bum, bum. So it's very open. Sorry, I'm probably sounding very sniffly when I sing, but nasally, but you get the idea. Um, but Bernstein uses this as the very kind of foundation for the entire score. So uh, the whole opening sequence, which is very famous, it has the two gangs and they come in snapping and uh, it all, it uses this over and over again. And the theme, uh, kind of the returning theme, has this lack of resolution, this uncomfortable inter interval, the tritone. And this kind of becomes a symbol of the irresolution of these communities, this inability for there to be a resolve um, in, in the peace between these two gangs. And I don't want to uh, spoil the movie, so you'll have to go watch it. Although kind of, you know, the ending of Romeo and Juliet is pretty well known, so it doesn't end happily. It's a tragedy. Um, but the whole score ends again on that Bum, bum. So there's a sense in which the whole score, the whole movement is not resolved. Um, and this becomes this kind of living metaphor for what happens when trauma and anger and violence lives in the present instead of being able to be put to rest in memory. So there's a sense in which Lenny and uh, the West Side Story have these, these opposite problems, which is that... Um, 
<laughs> Lenny cannot create new memories and is therefore stuck in the past. Um, whereas the people in West Side Story, these two warring games, refuse to make new memories. They refuse to put the memory of the grudge, of the violence between them in the past, and instead bring it with them over and over again into the present. And this is actually something that has been borne out in research of why we see cycles of violence and um, cycles of trauma. In his book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I actually already talked about in, in Touch, uh, Bessel van der Kolk talks about how trauma is the inability to integrate an experience into memory. So trauma victims, when you ask them to recall a memory of their trauma, their bodies feel the physical signs of that that happening as though we're happening right now. So all the things that we would expect to have happened during an experience of violence, for instance, if a trauma victim were to remember them, their body would do all of the exact same things they did when they experienced the trauma. And, um, and Vanderkolt talks about how a lot of healing trauma is helping people come to a point at which the trauma was a terrible bad thing that happened in the past. It's helping them put and integrate an experience into memory so that it's no longer the thing that lives in the present with them. And they talk about, he talks about several different kinds of therapy that helps do that and how um, some particular forms of therapy, when people would come out of it, they'd be like, all of a sudden I know that thing happened, but it was a bad thing that happened in the past. And in a way, you see that in West Side Story, what's happening is this inability to put an experience into the past in memory. It's a lack of ability to integrate a memory into the past and therefore an inability to move forward in the future. So memory becomes a trap, a prison, something that you're living in in the present. And this ties back into the sense in which memory defines where we've come from, who we are, and where we're going, right? And uh, this... This tritone becomes a picture of this, because if you think of the tritone as the, the grudge, right, or the violence or the trauma that's happened between these two gangs, that, that small idea, that small musical idea, then revisits us in every experience, right? Whether it's the experience of love, uh, of Maria and Tony falling in love, or the experience of community in the gangs, or whether it's the experience of, um, of a dance or communal experience. This idea, because it hasn't been put into the past, continues to shape and color the experiences of the present. And the message that we seem to get from West Side Story is if this memory of violence is not integrated into the past, if it's not gotten rid of, it will never move forward and it will never resolve. And the pleading that we seem to get from Maria in the final scene is let this become a part of the past. Do not remember this as though we're in the present. And if this community is unable to move this trauma, this grudge, this violence from a present experience that continues to infect every other encounter, then it will continue to repeat itself over and over again. It will be a cycle of violence and a cycle of trauma. And in a way then, you could say that while Lenny needs to be able to remember things. This shows us that sometimes the key to healing is not just remembering things, but forgetting. It reminds me of the passage in Philippians 3.14 where it says, One thing I do, 
forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul has this this impetus and almost this kind of declaration that his duty is actually to forget what lies behind, to turn away from that memory, to no longer let the memory of the past becomes the thing that shapes his anticipation and his orientation toward the future. And I think this is the, the picture that we see also in, in van der Kolk's idea of therapy, that therapy for trauma victims is helping them put what was traumatic as a memory in the past so that we can press on towards what is ahead. And I think that this can kind of help us sit here and think about what we do with our memories. If you've ever had something really hard happen, um, whether that was something you regretted or something that was maybe a trauma, you you find yourself kind of, uh, what's the word for it, ruminating over it, right? You think over it again and again. And I think in one sense, this is actually important because our ability to think through an experience is part of what helps us put it into the past that we can move towards into the future. And I think that's something I would ask you on a personal level is how do you take the things that were in the past and make sure that they move to a place of memory rather than sticking with you in the present? Or perhaps a different question, which is, do you have anything that is in the past that is living with you in the present that needs to be put into the place of memory uh, that's now in its present moment living with you all the time? So this is what this little um, this little Ide fix or this little musical idea, the tritone, shows us in West Side Story. This lack of resolution, kind of because it's this picture of of an anger or a violence that refuses to be put in the past and therefore refuses to be resolved. And West Side Story ends with this this kind of begging for Maria to put this unforgiveness in the past to make it a memory and not a trauma that lives with her every day. And I think this is a good reminder for us. What is the musical lack of resolution that we carry around with us that shapes our experience of ourselves and of the present and of the future that needs to be resolved? And not resolved in the sense of tied up with a nice bow and explained and told why it's right, but resolved in the sense of putting it in a chapter that is closed. And if you don't know how to close that chapter, if there's something living with you from the past, seek help from the people around you, from mentors, from counselors, to help you put what is in the past in the past and to close the chapter so that you can live forward, as Philippians would say, uh, to live in a striving towards what is ahead, pressing on towards the goal, um, calling being called heavenward. So up to this point, we have seen the visual example of memento, uh, Lenny, the person who cannot make new memories and therefore can't progress in his sense of who he is and what his goals should be. And we talked about how uh, there is a self outside of our ability to narrate ourselves in our own memory, knowing that God holds who we are and our lives and our stories in his hands and makes them intelligible. And then we looked at the uh, musical example of West Side Story and this uh, this unresolved tritone that reminds us of what happens when we can't put a memory into the past which belongs in the past and therefore haunts us and colors everything that we experience in the future and our, and our straining towards the future. 
And finally, we want to look at this third example, which is the literary example of Remembering by Wendell Berry. And this is the story of a man who is saved by being remembered. This is a touching and lovely novel. I think if you've listened to my podcast for very long, you know that I love Wendell Berry, that I think that he gets to the heart of, um, of reality and goodness and what it looks like to strain for belonging in a world that is so isolated. And this is one of his works that I think does that the most sympathetically. Sarah wrote, my sister, wrote a uh, review of this book, which I will link to in the show notes, talking about how while she loves Wendell Berry, there can be this kind of sense of frustration you read Wendell Berry, right? Because we can all say, yes, we should belong. We should be a part of a family. We should be embedded in a community. But what do we do if we can't? But this novel really deals with that sense of isolation and lostness that we can have in the modern world uh, and does it in a way that is that is realistic, that's disorienting as life in the modern world can be, and yet that pulls us back to that center and that heart of love. So the story is about, it comes from Andy Catlett, who is, um, to give you a background on this, Wendell Berry, uh, if you haven't heard some of my other podcasts about him, is an author, a activist, and a farmer. So he uh, he's from Kentucky, and he has written an abundance of essays and novels. And he wrote a whole series of novels that's based around the fictional world of Port William. And it follows the lives and characters of this small Kentucky town um, from like the 50s until the early 2000s. And this is actually based on his own community in Kentucky. So he uh, actually, as a young man, he was from Kentucky, he had a very promising career in writing, but then rather shockingly kind of defied all of that and went back, bought his family farm, lived on it, and has has done environmental activism all that time, saying that the way that we, we should address the societal and social and governmental and environmental policies that are going so astray is through our connection to community, to history, and to home. And that in so much as we ignore those solutions, the solution of connecting to people in real life, we will continue to create problems. So he's kind of lived and practiced what he preached. And these novels are all kind of based loosely on his experience of conducting of the farming world. So uh, there are a whole bunch of these novels, and they deal with different characters from it. But one of them is Andy Catlett. And he is a farmer. And in this particular novel, Andy Catlett has had this tragic accident, which has resulted in the loss of his hand. And as a farmer, this is a profoundly important thing. It's an important thing to have a hand if you're anyone, but particularly if you are a farmer. And uh, so he really begins to have this kind of crisis of identity. He feels useless. He gets depressed. He, he uh, And so at the beginning of this book, we find him in a hotel room in San Francisco, far away from home, where he's at this uh, kind of convention for farmers. And um, he has kind of up and left his wife and children with this kind of intention never to go back, possibly never to go back. And he's feeling really lost. And uh, because he doesn't feel like he belongs anymore and he feels like he's useless and who is he and how could this have happened? And it follows his kind of feeling of lostness of being thrown into this very impersonal, uh, businessy world. And what we see in this book is someone who is on the cusp of, I hate to put it this way, but it's somebody who's on the cusp of damnation in the world, if that makes sense. As close as we can get to isolation, to separation from God and the people we love, he is living on the cusp of that, that 
experience. And the question is then, what will bring him back? What will redeem him? And the answer that comes to him is this sense of remembering. But it's not just his own remembering of what is true and good. It's the sense of being held in the memory of others, held in the memory of those who love him. And this comes out in this beautiful passage, which I'm going to read to you now. Um, near the end of the book, uh, when he finally comes back, he uh, and I'm ruining it, I'm sorry, but when he comes back, he, he finds this note on his kitchen counter that his wife has left for him. And it's kind of a it's kind of a sassy note. I love the wife in this book. She is, she is stubborn in her love of him. She loves him deeply, but in a non-sentimental way, in a way that loves him and mocks him and won't let him uh, wallow in his despair because she does love him. So he goes back and he finds this note, which becomes kind of the symbol of his having been remembered, not of his remembering, but of having been held in the heart of someone else. And this becomes a thing that that pulls him back from the brink. And so I'm going to read you this passage from Remembering. He is held, though he does not hold. He is caught up again in the old pattern of entrances of minds into minds, into places into minds. The patterns and limits complicate him, singing to him his own flesh. Out of the multitude of possible lives that have surrounded and beckoned him like a crowd around a star, he returns now to himself. He has met again his one life and one death, and he takes them back. It is as though leaving, he has met himself already returning, meeting, a few dead and living whose love has claimed him forever. He will be partial and he will die. He will live out the truth of that. Though he does not hold, he is held. He is grieving and he is full of joy. And here again, we have this theme of seeing that while memory and our own narration of ourselves shapes who we are, at the heart of our identity is not our own memories and understandings of ourselves, but the ways in which we are held in the memory of others, the way that love calls us out of our own heads and into the patterns of memory and love in other people. Andy is drawn back from the brink of despair, not by his own memory, but because he is remembered by others held in the palm of someone else's love. And I think this ties back into Augustine's understanding of memory. Because Augustine sees that as central as memory is, we cannot trust it. It is always incomplete. It's never final or whole or impartial. And when it fails to complete us, um, as it so often does, and it always will because we are incomplete, the only comfort is to know that we are fundamentally held and remembered in the mind of God. And in this sense, Andy is the opposite of Lenny. While Lenny kind of scrapes and grasps for these facts and these memories desperately, but finds himself with nothing to hold on to, Andy lets go in despair, but turns away and finds that he is held in the love and in the memory of others. I love the way that, that Rowan Williams puts this in reference to Augustine. He says that my identity is determined by the inaccessible but unfailing attention of God's love. So if we wrestle to think of who we are and we try to make sense of memories or we live with memories that won't let us live into the future, there is this beauty in being able to rest into God's attention of us, to remember that we are remembered, that our own memory and our own tale of who we are is not the only truth about us. 
So yes, memory does shape our sense of where we're coming from, of who we are and of where we're going. But more fundamentally than that, when we cannot make sense of our own story, even when we can't remember our own story, even when we can't put parts of our stories in the past and live fully into the future, we are held in God's attention and in the love of others. And that is the more fundamental truth about our identity, about where we've come from, about who we are, and of where we're going. It's not in our own kind of frantic sense to remember, like Lenny, um, or in our own efforts to put things to the past, like those in West Side Story, but in being remembered and being held in love that we are saved, just like Andy Catlett. And friends, this is a comfort to me, even as I think about my lost journal, because I know that even if I cannot remember those things perfectly, who I am, what I've become, is not dependent on my own narration of my story, but of being held in God's memory and being held in the palm of God's love who makes sense of my story as it conforms to Christ. Well, friends, I have already talked too long, longer than usual, but I hope that you have enjoyed this week's episode and that it's touched on something in your own heart or life. I hope that you will know that who you are is more than your memories, more than your ability to narrate who you are and what you love. I hope that you will trust the memories that seem to live with you in the present to God and be able to close them in the chapter of your life and open up to pressing forward to things ahead. And that you will know that you are remembered, always held in the mind of God and in those who love you. I look very forward to chatting with you all next week. And I hope that you'll join me next time on Speaking with Joy.